you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. When we found out that my wife was pregnant with our first child, people began asking us, do you think it's going to be a boy or a girl? What are you hoping for? And for me, I, the answer to that question was, you know, we hope that it's healthy, we hope it's a healthy baby, but I'm really hoping for a boy. I, I, as, a, as, a, as a male myself, I was comfortable, I knew the way that, that boys think, but there's also this self-imposed pressure that I put on myself. See, my dad has two brothers, and both of his brothers had all girls, and so I felt like there was this pressure on me to carry on the Cogdale name, so I needed to have a, a boy. And so our first uh, child was born, Caleb, he was a boy, and so there was just like, okay, got that out of the way, okay, we're good. So when Tara was pregnant with our second child, I would just kind of had this mindset that, that we were going to be a, a boy family. I just kind of had kind of dead set. So when we found out it was a girl, it was like, okay, change of plans. Like, I got to get an entirely different mindset here. And uh, when our daughter Ellie came, it was like just flipping a switch. Like, I immediately went into dad of daughter mode. And I began to experience uh, feelings and love. And there were certain things that, 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 that I did and I felt that I never imagined. And I absolutely love being the dad of a daughter. And I share all that because today, this passage in Judges has significant, uh, a special significance for me as a dad of a daughter. This passage speaks to what I hope and dream for her, what I pray for her. It's the story of Deborah, the only female judge. Now guys, don't zone out because there's plenty in here for you too. Judges chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that left-handed Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, had 900 chariots fitted with iron. Now, if you remember in our first week in our study of Judges, we said that these chariots of iron were like the tanks of the ancient world. And Israel didn't have any of these. These ancient, uh, these, these iron chariots could, could mow down dozens of foot soldiers at once. Israel didn't have any of these iron chariots, so they had, these people had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried out to the Lord for help. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men. I will lead Sisera and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. And so Deborah sighs, Certainly I will go with you. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. Say, so, well, that seems like some kind of random detail, just kind of thrown in there, right? We, we've got Deborah and, and Barak and, and this imminent battle, and then the author takes this rabbit trail and talks about some dude and his wife who couldn't get along with their neighbors, so they took their trailer and moved out in the middle of the desert. 
But as you'll see in just a moment, it's not a random detail at all. Now, meanwhile, back to the story, in verse 12, Deborah directs Barak and the army down to a region at the base of Mount Tabor. It's a river basin, which is another very important detail. Verse 14, then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, and 10,000 men followed him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Now, we're going to find out in chapter 5 that one of the reasons why Sisera had fled on foot was a sudden rainstorm that had come, and the river flooded, so Sisera's 900 chariots got stuck. And what's remarkable about all of this is that it took place during the dry season when it never rained. If Sisera had thought there was even a remote chance of there being rain, he would have never taken his chariots down there because he knew that they could have got stuck. This would be like us getting a snowstorm in July. It just doesn't happen. In other words, God worked a simple little miracle that turned Sisera's great advantage, his 900 chariots, into dead weight. So Sisera's running on foot, and he comes, verse 17, to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Remember them? Out in the middle of nowhere is a tent all by itself. Again, this is another miracle of providence. Their tent is right in the middle of the woods where Sisera is fleeing. Jael went out to meet them and said, verse 18, Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Can you picture this woman kind of tucking in this big bad warrior, making sure he's, he's got some milk to drink and sings him a little lullaby? Verse 21, but Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Not sure that last phrase was necessary. I think we understand that's probably going to happen, but uh, he didn't see that coming, did he? You probably didn't either. And then she walked outside and said, nailed it. <laughs> what a smashing salvation story, right? What can we learn from this? A lot of people say, well, this is just so violent, and, and stories like this just, just lead to more violence. I will explain all of that later. But I want us to look at the piercing truths that we can learn from the stories of Deborah, Barak, and Jael. Here's number one. God gives men and women the same spiritual gifts. God gives men and women the same spiritual gifts. This story, perhaps as much as any in the Bible, gives you a glimpse into the role that God has for women in his kingdom. Deborah was a prophet, a wise and respected leader in Israel. Now, there are some people who say that the only reason Deborah is a prophet is because there were no other men around to lead, which speaks of the moral collapse in Israel. But there's nothing in this passage that indicates that. Yes, we see Barak waver in his faith, 
But even before that happens, Deborah is an established leader and teacher in Israel. The story says that she was in the place that she was because of her gifting, which leads me to emphasize something that Scripture teaches. Women have access to every spiritual gift that men do. See, there's, there's a myth that is alive in certain parts of the church that men should be taught deep, rich theology, and, and women should learn how to match their curtains with their couch pillows, and, and uh, that women should learn how to not feel sad on rainy days. I saw one Christian author point out that anytime you go to a Christian women's conference and they teach out of the book of Ephesians, the only part of the book they teach on is Ephesians 5, where Paul discusses the role of the wife in marriage, as if the rest of the book is written for men and just that one part is for women. The entire book of Ephesians is for women, and women need to learn all of it. See, I did not marry a weak, superficial woman. I'm not raising my daughter to be one, and I don't want this church to create them either. Our ministry here at Bachelor Creek, it aims to help ladies be better wives or mothers if that is a role that God has given to you. But we are also passionate to see that God, those of you that God has called to be leaders become leaders. Now, having said that, in both the Old and New Testaments, God establishes certain positions that he only wants men to play and others that he only wants women to play. In, in the Old Testament, for example, women couldn't serve as priests. Or you see in this story how Deborah won't lead the army. Even when Barak hesitates, she doesn't say, okay, I'll do it. Or did you notice that in chapter 4 when she's introduced, she's identified as the wife of Lapidoff? The writer doesn't ever do that for men. It doesn't say Joshua, the husband of Kim, or Barak, the husband of Michelle, just to throw out a random name. That's a Hebrew way of indicating that she has an identity in her home led by her husband. Even in the role of prophet, she identifies herself in a home led by her husband because that is a role that God has given him to play. In the New Testament, Paul says very clearly in 1 Timothy 2 and 3 that women should not serve in the role of pastor elders in the church. But that does not prohibit them from leading in other spheres or from exercising the same spiritual gifts that men have, including leadership and teaching, just not in the capacity of pastor elders. There's this really controversial statement in 1 Timothy 2.11. Paul says that a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. We read that and we wonder, well, what's he mean by that? Well, it can't mean that women should not speak prophetically or teach. We see them doing that throughout the Old New Testament. They're called prophetesses and deaconesses. Priscilla in Acts chapter 18 is said to be the tutor of the great preacher Apollos. Well, Paul tells you exactly what he means in his next statement. See, in, in our English Bibles, we have this unfortunate chapter division before, between 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 3. But when Scripture was originally written, there were no chapter divisions, there were no verse divisions. Those were inserted hundreds of years later. And so we see, if we keep on reading, what Paul means. He says that women are not to be ruling elders in the church. That's all he means. Of course, they, they teach and prophesy. We see that in the New Testament, just not in the capacity of pastor elders. This is what Tim Keller writes. He says, God forbids one kind of role in the church to women, as he did in Israel. We must not jump from that to forbidding all teaching and tasks to women. 
And we shouldn't assert all sorts of, speci- all sorts of specific tasks are off limits to women. For example, working outside of the home, speaking in front of church services, teaching males over 12. It is better to say that everything a man who isn't an elder can do, a woman can do also. See, there has been this false dichotomy that's been put forward in the church. It's that either you believe there is no distinction of roles at all, or you believe that women can only serve in some sort of diminished role because they don't have the capacity to lead. Church, we need to reject that dichotomy and instead adopt what the Bible puts forth as our standard. Women are equals without being equivalents. The Bible teaches equality of position, equality of gifting, but with distinctive roles to play in family and church. So specifically to the women here today, I want to say three things. One, God has a calling on your life. God has a calling on your life. Yours is not just simply to sit on the sidelines and make coffee and cookies and have kids. Do you know what that calling is? Are you obeying it? Like Deborah, you need to get into the fight. Second, you are a leader with spiritual authority. I know a lot of women who are entirely too dependent on their husbands who never takes spiritual responsibility. But that's not what you see in Deborah. Here you see a leader of the highest caliber. She is the wisest and most courageous person in all of Israel. Third, you can do all of this while respecting God's order, as you see Deborah do here. She refuses to take positions that God had assigned to men, and she identifies herself in a house headed by her husband. We need to reject both sides of the dichotomy, that God doesn't give the same gifts to women as he does to men, or that there is no distinction of roles in the church. I mentioned to you that I have a daughter, and one of the things that I pray for her is that she would be a Deborah. We need more Deborahs in this church and in the kingdom of God. We need more Deborahs in the home, speaking courage into their husbands, We need more Deborahs in ministry, calling us to pray and to give and to go and to sacrifice and leading us in that. I think of the so many women in this church who are faithfully leading in the role that God has called them to. I think of Nancy Crom, who's the chair of our Ladies Fellowship. I think of Nancy Jo Hamill, who leads the Ladies Bible Study. I think of Brittany Dawes, who leads our preschool volunteers. I think of Rachel McWirt, who's on our sisterhood leadership team, who leads a small group of fifth and sixth graders. I think of Amanda Boggs, who leads a small group of upperclassmen girls. We need more Debras. We need more Debras in society who rule and lead and teach with wisdom and courage and faith. Men, maybe you're married to a Deborah. You need to support her, affirm her. You need to platform her the way that Lapidoth did to Deborah. So that's lesson number one, that God gives men and women the same spiritual gifts. There's more, though. Deborah writes a song, and in it there are four important lessons for both men and women. By the way, if you're one of those people who, don't th- who think that you can never learn from a woman, then you might want to excuse yourself because this next chapter is written by a woman. Here's number two, lesson number two. When leaders lead, people praise the Lord. 
When leaders lead, people praise the Lord. Judges chapter 5, verses 2 and 9. Deborah says, when the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. She then, in verse 13, begins to list out the various tribes who stepped up to fight and those who didn't. In verse 14, we're told some from Ephraim came. Verse 15, the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Verse 18, the people of Zebulun risked their very lives. However, in verse 17, it says, Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? She says, blessed are the ones who stepped up. They step forward and fight the faith. Now, since I specifically spent a lot of that first point addressing women, this second point, I want to speak specifically to the men. I'm afraid that we have a lot of men lingering by the ships when they ought to be out in the fight. See, there's one way in which you can read Genesis chapter 3, where you see the original sin in the Garden of Eden as a sin of passivity on the part of Adam. See, God had given Adam the responsibility to lead his wife spiritually, to serve her, to protect her. And oftentimes when we read the story in the Garden of Eden, we picture Eve and the serpent together and Adam off someplace else, right? We, we think he's over off in some other part of the garden tending the crops. It, it doesn't come out very clearly in our English translations, but originally the Hebrew, it's very clear. It says that Adam was with her. And the word for with means that, that he was right next to her. He was standing by passively, idly, well, Eve took of the fruit. We see in our story here in Judges 4, even Barak, he hesitates at first. And the same thing happens today. We have a lot of men who aren't bad guys. They're just hanging out back by the ships when they ought to be leading in the fight. The great temptation of men is not to do evil, but to do nothing. I saw a statistic talking about the number of applicants to serve as missionaries in some of the most dangerous parts of the world, closed countries, hostile countries to Christians. And they said that applicants for missionaries in those countries are four to one women to men. That women outnumber men in those countries four to one. Now, I don't want to take anything away from the women. Thank God for the women who step up to do that. But I just have to ask, where are the men? Where are the men? When the princes lead, Deborah says, we praise the Lord. Men, God has given you a crucial role to play that cannot be replicated by anyone else. And if your family in this church is going to praise the Lord, it's because you step forward to lead. Every sociological study done points to the fact that the leadership of the father is the greatest determining factor on how kids turn out. For example, one study found this found that if a child is the first person in a family to come to faith in Christ, there is a 3.5% chance that the rest of the family will become Christians. If the mother is the first person to become a Christian, that percentage raises to 17%. But if the father is the first person in the family to come to faith in Christ, there is a 93% chance that the rest of the family will become believers as well. When the princes lead, we praise the Lord. When the princes abdicate their duties, 
the people suffer. There are plenty of guys in the world, dudes, but we need men. So, so can I say this? Deborah up. Men, Deborah up and be a man, okay? Here's number three. God curses spectators. God curses spectators. As Deborah lists all of the people who sat on the sidelines, she comes to a crescendo in verse 23. She says, curse Meraz, said the angel of the Lord, Curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. It doesn't say that they did anything bad. It doesn't say that they hung out back and, and smoked dope and raided the tents and solicited prostitutes. It just says they did nothing. You know, there, there are some people who see church as nothing more than a religious event that they attend. Come in on Sundays, get my coffee, sing a few songs, hear a message and leave, but not involved in the life of the church, not, not, not contributing, not adding to what God is doing through this place. And if that's you, I just want you to know how much you're really missing out on. Because here's what you need to know and what you see from this passage is that God actually curses this kind of inactivity. Sitting on the sidelines not only robs you of reward, it puts you under a curse. So I just have to ask you, are you active with your time? Actively serving the church with your time? Are you serving God with the talents and the giftedness that he has given you? Are you investing the treasure, the resources that he has given you into his church and in his kingdom? Are you investing it in the expanse of the kingdom of God? See, don't tell yourself you're okay as long as you're not committing crimes. As long as you're not doing anything illegal, you say, oh, I'm fine. No, no, no. There's more than one way to be wicked. Wickedness, yes, can come from what you do, but it can also come from what you fail to do. Jesus didn't say, watch me carefully. What did he say? Follow me. There's some of you, you need to act on this today. Some of you need to join the church. You need to plant your flag in the ground and, and say, I, I'm in. I'm going to become a part of Bachelor Creek, and I'm going to serve. I'm going to get involved. Start to invest of your time and your talents and your treasures into the kingdom of God. A great way to start right now, we're doing this initiative called Christmas in July. It's a great way for you to get involved and allow God to work through you. Pick up a bag on your way out today. See what happens when you allow God to work through you. Lesson four. All God requires is simple obedience. All God requires is simple obedience. We see in this story a recurring theme in Judges, that God brings down the most powerful tyrants with very weak instruments. In this case, it's a housewife with a tent peg. Now, by the way, a tent peg in those days were a common household item. They weren't necessarily weapons of war. This was like... Him, him being killed with a frying pan or a spatula, okay? Over and over, the book of Judges teaches us is that God does his work in the world through our availability, not our ability. Verse 24, it says, Most blessed of women, BJL, a housewife with a frying pan, who said, Here am I, send me. When I see most blessed, you know what I think of? 
I think of Mary, the mother of Jesus. When the angel, that's what the angel said of her. Blessed are you, Mary, among women. Here she was, a virgin, who was told that she was going to give birth to a son who would be the savior of the world. And as a virgin, she had no way of making that happen. But what was Mary's prayer? Be it unto me according to your word. Church, that is a prayer of surrender and faith. God, I'll do what you say, and I'm going to trust you with the results. That's how God always brings salvation into the world. Are you willing to pray that? Be it unto me, Lord. God, I'll give where you tell me to give. I'll go where you tell me to go. I'll serve where you tell me to serve. I'll trust where you tell me to trust. I'll rest when you tell me to rest. What this story shows you is that when you do that, God will fight for you. Our fifth lesson is this. One day, God will right every wrong. One day, God will right every wrong. Toward the end of Deborah's song, she begins to mock Sisera. In verse 28, she sarcastically puts words in Sisera's mother's mouth. Deborah pictures her peering out the window wondering, why are his chariots so long in coming? And the ladies of the court all kind of gather around her and begin to suck up to her by saying, oh, it's because there's so much Israelite spoils to divide. And then in verse 30, they say real, very crudely, a woman or two for each man. In other words, that the men have girls to rape. Meanwhile, Sisera is being killed by a woman. Do you see what's happening? Perfect justice is being served. Sisera has spent his life oppressing and abusing women. And in the end, he is brought down with a woman with a Hebrew version of a frying pan. In verse 26, Deborah sings, She struck down Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. I'm not really sure that's the tune, but scholars say that the way this song was written is that she's mimicking the blows of the hammer against Sisera's skull, that there is a staccato, there's a rhythm in the way that this song is sung. At her feet, he sank, he fell. There he lay at her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. See, Israel loved to tell stories of how God had delivered them. They loved to savor them like a fine wine, sip by sip. And if they enjoyed recounting the songs of their deliverance, how much more should we? This is how Deborah ends her song in verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, Lord, but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Now, you may be sitting there saying, but we don't always see justice served like this. Not every story we know has a happy ending. Not every rapist, not every sexual predator is brought to justice. And that is true. In this life, we often see the guilty go unpunished. But that doesn't mean the discussion's over. In this story, we get a glimpse of how it's all going to end. God settles all scores. This story, like all the stories of Judges, points us to Jesus. Like Jael, he will be the unexpected Savior whom everyone assumed was weak, 
who slays the enemy by surprise. In him, oppression is ended, justice is restored, and for those in Christ, the Son of God's love and life rises on us in strength, making the fog and darkness of what we experience today disappear. Church, eternity is coming. It's not very far away. And you will be in a land bursting with the brightness of justice, glowing in the glory of love, where there is no pain, where there is sadness, where there is no sadness, where God wipes away the tear of every eye. No more pain, no more crying, no more mourning, no more death. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. One of my favorite descriptions of heaven in the Bible says there will be no more sun, there will be no more moon, because God, our Lord, will be our constant light. I alluded to this at the beginning, and I want to deal with kind of one final objection. It's how some people read this story, and they say stories like this, they're, they're, they're so violent, and, and, and all they do is lead to more violence. People taking justice into their hands, killing their enemies. It just creates a more violent world, and I would say not at all. Not if you read this and understand the story the right way. In fact, I would say it does the opposite. Because God commands us in Romans 12 not to take vengeance into our own hands because he will repay. And what these stories show you is that one day God will restore justice. And if I believe he will restore justice, then that means that I don't have to. Think about it. When an atheist believes that there is no God who serves out justice in eternity, then who bears the burden of making sure that justice is served? They do. When you don't believe God will bring justice, you seethe under injustice until it eats at you, until you've avenged yourself. And what kind of world does that create? A, wo a world full of fear, full of vengeance, full of hate. But the cross creates a different kind of world. Because in the cross, I see two things. I see, one, that all wrongs will be righted. And two, I see the wrongs that I have done were put on Jesus' head. Which means that I don't need to take vengeance into my own hands. And it means that I am a forgiven man, which means that I have no right to judge. I know that every sin ever committed against me will be paid for either in hell or on the cross. So I can release myself from the necessity of feeling like I have to do justice. I have to be the one that takes justice in my hands, but it also frees me from the necessity of feeling like I've got to be the one that's in control. It helps me realize that, that as one who has been forgiven, I am to forgive. I no longer have to carry around the tent peg of justice to drive into the skulls of the people who hurt me. Why? Because God carries the pegs of justice, and the peg for my justice, he put into Jesus' body. But there is one message in the book of Judges, and that is there is a Savior who is coming, a Savior who can save, a Savior who can sustain, and if you try to save yourself, you will fail. You will live a life of fear. You will live a life of envy. You will live a life of hate. You will live a life of vengeance. But if you trust in Jesus, you will have a life of peace. 
you will have a life where you know that all things are working out for good and you can finally be free. Which way are you living? Which way are you living? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the cross. God, we thank you that, that in the cross, justice was served. That our sins were paid for. What, what an incredible sacrifice. It changes our entire lives. God, I pray that as, as we go through this life, as, as we live in this world, that we would be dispensers of mercy, dispensers of forgiveness, dispensers of grace, because that's what we have received. Because Jesus paid it all. God, we thank you that because of the cross and because Jesus rose again, we know that every wrong that we still in this world will one day be righted. And that totally frees us, God. God, I pray that we would be a church that raises up men and women to lead. That, that we would be a people completely sold out for you, on mission for you. God, when all of us are using our time, our talents, and our treasures for you in your kingdom, the possibilities are endless. I pray that we would be smack dab in the center of your will, living on mission for you. And I pray that all of us would rise up and live lives of simple obedience, just doing what you've called us to do. God, for some people here, that obedience means surrendering their life to you for the very first time. God, for others, it, it means making the commitment to, to join in and to be all in, to be involved here at Bachelor Creek. God, for others, it, it means coming back to you, having a fresh start, starting all over again. God, whatever it is, I pray that we will obey what you have called us to do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.